You know, the Old Testament law was never meant as a saving instrument. It was designed to show us our need of a Savior, to show us our need of Christ and revealing our sin. Galatians, a New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul, says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanging on a tree. So this becomes instructive as we read of Israel's past and inability to keep the law, to keep the covenant of God. It always pointed to a sacrifice. So every year, high priests would have to sacrifice to stave off God's judgment. Old Testament sacrifice staved off God's judgment. And then it also pointed to something ahead. And that was the ultimate eternal sacrifice in Christ. The purpose of the law was to show how much we needed that sacrifice. As we read of Israel's problems here in Hosea 4, it's not to point a finger at all of these bad people, but I hope you can see yourself in that story. As we talked with our staff uh, this weekend at our staff retreat, we looked at the uh, woman caught in adultery, and I asked the question, who do we identify with in the story? Do we identify with the people uh, condemning the woman? Do we identify with the woman, the sinner? Do we identify with Christ, the rescuer? Or do we identify with the bystander standing around? And as I pondered that, I realized I identify with the sinner. I'm the one in need of a Savior. I'm in desperate need daily of Christ. That's the purpose of the law, to show us our need, how short I fall daily. So those who think the Old Testament law has no meaning today, uh, has no purpose today, they don't know their Bible, and they have a very limited view of God. Uh, so as we read of Israel's problems, again, it's not the point of finger, but it's to see ourselves in the story in our desperate need of Christ. So it's far more than a, a theological statement, but a practical one as we deal with sin in our own lives. So anybody without sin in their life, I welcome you to come and take over right here and start speaking. Um, the fact is that's none of us. The Bible says in 1 John that all of us sin. And if you think you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself, right? So Christ is the answer for all of it. Christ is the answer to the non-believer who sees the sin. Christ is the answer to the believer. That's why we take communion, to remind ourselves of the sacrifice of Christ that continually cleanses us. So um, I want us to just understand that this passage, as we read it, can maybe seem as some, you know, ho-hum, you know, talks about stealing, lying, blah, blah, blah. I know, I'm not supposed to steal. Oh, no, wait, 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 wait a second, okay? Uh, first of all, it's to have 
the purpose that I just mentioned, but also, are, are we really so hot to trot that we think that, uh, you know, we don't need to be reminded of some of these things, of the commandments of God, the ways of God? Uh, I mean, don't you ever in your marriage come to a point where you realize, man, I've got to do a reset. I've got to come back to the basics. Um, and so I think this is much the same way. We come back realizing that this is the heart of God, this, this law that emanates from his character. It's who he is. It's just not some capricious God that's saying, you know, I think what I'm going to do is create a few commandments that takes all the fun away from these people. No, it's the, the, the commandments, the morality flows from his character. It's consistent with who he is. And therefore, we have the Ten Commandments and, and the Word of God. So, verse 1. By the way, a little bit of a recap. So, you have the divided kingdom, Israel and Judah. Uh, and uh, God was using Hosea as an illustration of what it's like for God to be with Israel. You say, what's the big deal about that? Because Hosea had a wife named Gomer who was a prostitute. And God is saying, continue to love her. All right? And as you do that, you're going to get just a little bit of a glimpse of what it's like for me to love my people. Because they're constantly out of line. And I constantly have to make good on my covenant with them. I mean, it is quite the illustration. Um, and, you know, the, what God had called Hosea to, I mean, that is tough stuff. You talk about reasons maybe you want to leave your marriage for things that are tough for you. <laughs> it's nothing like what Hosea had to go through, all right? Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So Israel's problem was our problem in our society, and it was certainly a problem for them. They needed to hear the word of the Lord. They had no knowledge of God in the land. They were ignorant of God. They didn't want to know the word of God. You know, if the Holy Spirit were to send a prophet to us today, and that prophet were to pinpoint what our issue is for us in our culture, I guarantee this would be a part of it. Hear the word of the Lord. You have no knowledge of God. You have neglected his voice. God has spoken to Israel in the past. He's spoken to them there in Hosea, and both times they would deny the authority of God in his word, just like it's done today. Even in many churches, they deny his voice. They try to, try to rehash it, present it in some way that's more palatable instead of just giving it clear and plain. They've worshiped idols. And Hosea has spent three chapters telling Israel what it's like to be their God, just like I explained with Homer uh, to um, Gomer and Hosea. Hosea writes this as if a formal charge has been given. It's almost like a court of law. The Lord has a controversy, a charge against you. Here's the charge. The divine judge has a case against the northern kingdom of Israel. 
And when the divine judge speaks, there are no arguments that we can give where we can rightly defend ourselves. I mean, I imagine if Israel could, they would say something like, well, you know what? My parents were idol worshipers. We just couldn't help ourselves. We fell right into it. You know, these are just my urges. I can't say no to myself. This is the way I express my freedom. I'm just being me. This is who I am. i got to let the child within me to, to come out and be who they really are. Wow. Life is too hard here. Don't I get a pass of following, you know, God's strictures in the, in the law? Nothing that they can say objectively can stand against the pronouncement of almighty, righteous God. They lived in the land, but they did not actually own the land. God had promised it to them. They were like a homeless people, and God said, here, I'll give you this place to live. God promised Abram, to your offspring, I will give this land. And their job was to be faithful to him. Yet the people are marked by, as verse 1 says, no faithfulness, no steadfast love, no knowledge of God. Is there even going to be a remnant that can be consistently faithful to me? Is God saying that to his church today? Is there even a remnant that can be consistently faithful? No faithfulness. It can be translated integrity, no integrity. The Hebrew word denotes a man who continues to be faithful to his neighbor, true to his speech, or reliable. He does what he says. He doesn't make excuses. He does the job. He shows up on time. When he says he's going to be at a place at a certain time, he consistently is there. This was not the case with Israel. They had a covenant with God, and they continually broke the promises. This is not some, you know, uh, little slip. This is who they are. They were unrecognizable as God's people. Maybe a little rough, but I remember a pastor who visited a, somebody in jail. They had done multiple offenses, and the man was telling the pastor, boy, you know, I'm uh, really going to town witnessing the people in this jail. The pastor goes, oh, please, please, stop your witnessing. I don't want people to even know you're a Christian. <laughs> he said, with people like you, we don't need that kind of advertising. <laughs> That's a little rough, all right? But I think the point is there's got to be consistency there. They were unrecognizable as God's people. Next, there was no steadfast love. They lacked love and compassion. Hesed is the Hebrew word. It's a love that's beyond duty, although it includes or starts with duty. Hesed exists when a, in a marriage when a husband or a wife goes beyond the minimal requirements, the minimal obligations, and shows kindness to their spouse even when they are undeserving. Mercy, grace, that's part of the idea. When Lot proclaimed that the angels had shown him great hesed in saving his life, 
He meant that they had given him mercy that he did not deserve. They weren't just doing a duty. When Ruth offered herself to marriage to Boaz, he called it a great act of said. It's more than an obligation to him or to Naomi. There's more than what was required. It's, it's an act of mercy. It stems from the heart. It's a kindness. And what Hosea is saying, this is missing in you as God's people. And this is missing in our culture today, right? We live in a culture where we cancel one another out when we disagree with them. Oh, I know, I know. Christians don't cancel each other out. No, what we do is uh, we just ignore them and criticize them behind their back. When a culture legalizes and celebrates violence done to enemies, it knows little of said. I mean, how can people kill the babies in their wounds and call it health care? Others show memes of political enemies with bleeding, decapitated heads. But steadfast love flows from the followers of Jesus Christ, and it knows that it can freely love even those that are unlovely because they've been loved the same way by him. But those who forget God, forget has said. Instead, steadfast love being there, Israel was cruel, self-centered. They also had no knowledge of God in the land. They did not acknowledge God. They did not care to know how God related to everyday life. They were purposely ignorant of God. A people without the the knowledge of God will embrace false teaching about God and they have no living connection with God. So what you have here is something objective, not understanding or believing the right things about God, and then subjective. There is no living connection of how God interacts with life. They don't connect the dots. There's no personal relationship, no confidence of who God is or how he relates. H.G. Wells said, civilization is a race between education and catastrophe. I think Hosea would change that and say, we are in a race between the knowledge of God and catastrophe. Everybody's answer today is, we need more education with race. We need more education with poverty. I'm not saying education's wrong. I'm just saying it's not nearly enough. We need the knowledge of God. Israel was experiencing catastrophe because they forgot God. And you look throughout the Old Testament, and it says they forgot God. They kept the idols up in the high places. They forgot God. When Harry Truman became president, he worried about losing touch with common everyday Americans. So he'd often go out and be among them and take a walk. And, of course, those were simpler days when you could do that as a president. One evening, Truman decided to take a walk down to the Memorial Bridge on the Potomac River. And when he grew curious about the mechanism that raised and lowered the bridge, he made his way across the catwalks and came upon the bridge tender. 
uh, who was eating his evening supper out of a tin bucket. The man showed absolutely no surprise when he looked up and saw the best-known, most powerful man in the world sitting next to him. He just swallowed his food, wiped his mouth, smiled and said, you know, Mr. President, I was just thinking about you. (laughs) According to Truman's biographer, David McCullough, it was a greeting that Truman adored and never forgot. The Lord adores it when his people think about him. Consider him daily, constantly, always on the mind, walking in the presence of God. I don't need to walk along the Potomac for that. I can do that anywhere. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. People Magazine once undertook a part series. That's where I go to when I try to find solid theology. Um, It undertook a part serious, part tongue-in-cheek survey of its readers on the subject of sin. The results were published as a syndex, with each sin rated by a sin coefficient. The outcome was a little amusing and instructive. Sins like murder, child abuse, spying against one's country were rated the worst sins in ascending order. Smoking, swearing, illegal, recording, far down the list. Parking in a handicapped spot was rated surprisingly high, whereas uh, living together, being unmarried, got off lightly. Cutting in front of someone in line was deemed worse than divorce or capital punishment. Predictably, corporate sin was not mentioned at all, and the survey concluded, I quote, overall readers said they commit about 4.64 sins a month. I'm like, you know, that would be, for me, about a minute, right? When you consider all the thoughts that go through your head and the things that you struggle with, right? Let's be honest. 4.64 sins a month. Of course, calculating our sins according to our standards is not very precise. In the Bible, it's not, you know, just the bad acts we do, but it tells us that sin has a power over us in Romans 8, 9. As the writer Dorothy Sayers said, sin is a deep interior dislocation at the very center of the human personality. The 20th century poet W.H. Alden called sin the air bred in the bone. It's like a a cancer to oneself. And it's contagious. Now, our view of it is important in terms of how we relate to it, but understand this. Your view of sin doesn't change the nature of it. It doesn't change whether or not you you, uh, experience the consequences or not. The reality of it continues to exist and roll on no matter what your view is about it. The description in Hosea is like a raw form, and our mistake 
is to act like we're unfamiliar with these things. Lying, stealing, hmm, tell me more about that. I have no idea what you mean. It's instructive for us to learn to recognize the flesh at work in us, rearing its ugly head in some of these things, and then the need for confession and repentance and the need for the Spirit to fill us again and the need for continual cleansing. What else is there? Well, there's, lot, there's swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. See, when there is no God, everything is permissible, right? When we forget about God, appealing to the flesh is met with enthusiasm. And here are some of the ways it is manifest. Reading such a list is not for us of pointing out on Facebook all those dirty offenders, but rather to acknowledge that we've got the cancer too. But we do have the remedy. And the cure is only found in a real life encounter with Jesus Christ. Amen. Swearing. When's the last time you heard a pastor talk about swearing? Swearing. The word actually means to curse God, to mock and disavow him. The third of the Ten Commandments prohibited misuse of the Lord's name, Exodus 20, verse 7. By swearing, like it says here, one is mocking God, is weak and useless. In a recent book, Levi Lusco writes that it takes cooperation of 72 different muscles to produce speech. On average, 16,000 words come out of your mouth every day. That adds up to a whopping 860.3 million words in the average American lifetime. What do all the nouns, verbs, adjectives, and sentences say, though, about a life, about a heart, when you look at them and you add them all up? Words are like investments we make in the God we worship, in the, in the people we love, or they're like knives we use to cut the heart of others, to bring disrespect to the God we serve. And let's not fool ourselves. Swearing against God is prohibited, it's recorded in heaven, and it's damaging. Next is lying. Lying covers any attempt to evade responsibility or detection through falsehood. Now, we typically view lying like, you know, uh, when you're a kid, you're a teenager, you say, hey, I'm going to my buddy's house, but you're really going to a party, all right? That's lying, right? We all get that. But lying is also evading responsibility by restating our narrative that does not match reality. It's why we get so defensive all the time about certain things that people may say. Even though it's the truth, we get defensive and we lie, we deny it. Now, I'm not saying that every charge is true, but in the case where we get really defensive, we lie about it. We'd be better just to keep our mouths shut than lying. But when, you know, when others say, well, you've been prideful, you've been selfish, you've been manipulative, 
That's the reality, but we speak a falsehood. The, listen, the inability to represent truth to ourself is the first form of losing integrity. Listen, parent, a three-year-old lying is never cute. It's not cute either in a grown man or woman who refuses to accept their part in a family split because they lie about their responsibility. They give excuses. It's lying. And it reflects that you reject the word of God, which states reality. No, I'm going to create my own narrative. Screw what God has to say. I'm going to create my own story. So the knowledge of God becomes useless to the person. That's why Proverbs condemns it by saying, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Then you have murder. Murder is the declaration that the value of human life is lost. Murder reduces human existence to the level of a beast of prey. It's no wonder that a Darwinian philosophy that forgets God forms a way to think that it's merely survival of the fittest. <laughs> Why should those who care or say that they care about the creator um, care about his creation? Well, they should care about his creation if they say they care about the creator. But when we murder, we don't care for either his creation or the creator. On April 13th, about 20 years ago, Luther Castile walked into J.B.'s pub in Elgin, Illinois. He had four guns and he opened fire. Killed two people, wounded 16 others. At his trial, Castile was unrepentant, and according to the Chicago Tribune, when asked by his attorney if he felt any remorse, he said, you know, any feelings I have in this regard, I keep between myself and the Lord. Mm, love when you bring God into your murder. Um, he also said, as, as ironic as this sounds, I'm a passionate, giving person. I like to think I'm a pretty good person. I'm not one to hurt anyone that doesn't provoke me. Couldn't that be said of any of us? Sure, we're all pretty good people until something happens. Somebody provokes us. Sin is somehow someone else's fault. Or it's an uncharacteristic break in the normal pattern of me being a good person. But the Bible teaches that nobody is a pretty good person. The gra gravity of murder reveals much more than just a blip on the screen. Genesis 9-6 clearly demonstrates the principle of murders breach this image of God quality in every person, whether you think they deserved it or not. It's also a slap in the face of God's sovereignty because we're taking matters into our own hands. God can't handle an injustice. I got to do this myself. I got to go and kill the creep. I talked to a man from the Middle East, had lunch with him, and he talked about it in the country he lived in. The police didn't do much of anything, and he talked about a case where he's at a light, and in the car in front of him, the guys get out of the car with a machine gun and start shooting at the car behind him taking care of a family squabble with some machine guns 
killed him. And he said, he's just caught in the middle of it. And he goes, this is not an unusual occurrence. Taking matters in my own hand. It's the devaluation of God's creation. Jen and I went to our daughter's um, senior art presentation when she graduated from college, displayed all of her work, you know, and you're supposed to look at it and admire all the seniors' work, right? Now, if I had taken scissors, cut up her pictures, spray paint to spray over the pictures in her presence, would that not be the ultimate rejection of her gift and creativeness? That's exactly what man does. He swipes at the creator, rejects his gift in earth's gallery when he murders. Then they're stealing. They're stealing. That's the society that forgets about God. The Bible says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Proverbs says, treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. And then Romans, it says, pay, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Have you stolen any items from work, taken from the petty cash and not paid it back? Do you know that thievery at work is a much bigger percentage than you think? You know why? Because people feel they're not paid enough. They feel it's a way to get back at the work. So I steal time, I steal money, I steal goods from my employer and get back at them because they're cutting me short. This makes you a thief. It's stealing. Treasure is gained by wickedness. You ever taken towels from a hotel? This is not a petty, insignificant act. It's stealing and not being honoring to the owners. Whatever you have stealing, we can confess it before God, pay back what is owed, restore your honest labor. There was an English evangelist who spoke about 20 years ago in Liverpool on the Ten Commandments, and when speaking of stealing, he talked to the congregation about restoring those things. So conscience-stricken people handed in large quality, uh, quantities stolen goods during that week. The inventory of pilfered items included hospital crutches, library books, CDs, videotapes, and a money that equaled about $560. And then there were several letters of confession. The evangelist said, stealing any item, however small, is wrong. The commandment doesn't say, don't steal over one pound sterling at a time. And there was one man who was a religious leader in the country who stole a towel when he worked at the Wimbledon tennis tournament, had it for years, but God convicted him, and he returned it after hearing the message. That's real repentance. That shows God is working in your heart. Then there's adultery. 
Sexual sin in America is now an expression, and I know that it was originally written to Israel. I get that. But whether it's Israel or here, it's an expression of freedom and celebrated in the streets. The idea is that we're no longer being tied to these, you know, archaic commandments. The line goes something like this. Having an affair is an innocent thing that just happens. I cannot control my feelings. By the way, have you ever heard the offended spouse say that? You ever heard the children talk about it that way? I don't think so. They're the ones having to pick up the pieces of a shattered marriage. Marriage was to reflect the covenant God made with Israel as being unconditional. And when God's people commit adultery in rampant numbers, it conveys that the promises of God are negligible. This is what people do when they forget God. See, adultery is not a private sin. Adultery forgets God's covenant, negates God's creation in marriage, supplants God's moral order with some now personalized version that bows to human passion. And such an idol, idolizing your passions, leads to destruction. Time Magazine recently, recently featured an article that asked, is monogamy over? The article offered various opinions, including monogamy is a charade that leads to institutionalizing dishonesty, and monogamy is just an option, not the default, and there's no right, there's no wrong. Time also interviewed a pastor for this story, and he offered this view. This is pretty good, listen. Monogamy is more like an endangered species, rare, valuable, something to be fed and protected. Perhaps an armed guard should be assigned to every monogamous couple to ward off poachers. The value a culture places on monogamy determines the welfare of its women and children. Women and children do not fare well in societies that undermine the financial in societies that embrace polygamy or promiscuity. In the majority of cases, sexual freedom undermines the financial freedom of women. Sexual freedom eventually undermines the financial and emotional security of children. If we were only biology, none of the above really matters. If we were only biology, monogamy was probably a flawed concept from the start. But very few of us live as if we're only biology. As a pastor, I've officiated my share of weddings and I've done my share of premarital counseling. I've always asked couples, why are they getting married? Survival of the species never makes the list. <laughs> the I and you that inhabit our bodies desire more than another body. We desire intimacy, to know and to be fully known without fear. Intimacy is fragile. Intimacy is powerful. Intimacy is fueled by exclusivity. So, no, monogamy is not obsolete. It's endangered, end quote. Isn't that good? Our passage in Hosea talks about breaking all bonds. In other words, there is no ethical standard or line. We get rid of the line. We continually cross it. The flesh is given free reign in Israel, just like it is in our country. Bloodshed follows. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Violence and recrimination dominate society. One act of violence gives rise to another. 
I mean, just look at our entire entertainment industry, gaming industry, violence. You know, I, can, I could sit there and quote you the facts, but for those that are into it, you're not going to listen anyway. But I just ask you, does it, does it breed things within your own spirit that are, that are peaceful before God? What's the answer? Well, in the depths of World War II, Swedish authorities decided their citizens needed to know what to do if the fighting arrived at their doorstep. Though they maintained neutrality, it was hard to believe they could continue to do so, especially as their Nordic neighbors got caught in the tides of violence. So they decided to have a handy pamphlet delivered to the households across Sweden that was intended as a, a handbook for catastrophes. You know, just give them more rules. This is what's going to help. Now, Sweden is bringing the pamphlets back. Talking about now, as in this decade. The Swedish Civil Contingencies Agency, it's called, is organizing a reboot of the pamphlet, this time augmenting its advice on conventional warfare that, with tips on how to grapple with threats of this era. Terrorism, cyber attacks, pandemics, misinformation campaigns, and crisis related to climate change. Don't we need just more government authorities telling us how we need to act? Yes, God, please give us more. <laughs> A spokesman for the agency said, back then the focus was only on war. Today society looks totally different. They are considerably more complex. Yeah. People need to learn more and know more about how to handle their own and their nearest relatives, their fundamental needs for a while. I'm not suggesting we not care for the needs. There's nothing wrong with that education, but we need more than education. We need more than rules. We need more than just this list of instructions on how to respond to a stress-filled world a war-torn world. May I submit to you that our answer is not a list of rules, but it's the Prince of Peace himself that can change the human heart, that can help us from going from bloodshed to a caring community. He's the only one that can stop the bloodshed. He's the only one that can truly stop the rest of the sins that we have talked about today, at least in a, in a viable manner. You might be able to stop behavior, but you still have the heart that you have to deal with. Say, well, I've never committed adultery. Oh, okay, that's great. Have you ever lusted? So you're, you're not as far away as you think you are. That's what Jesus was trying to tell the Pharisees. You think, well, you know what? I don't really, you know, murder. What, 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 what? You hate right? You're not as far away as you think you are. It's in your heart. And until you can change the heart, you're going to be in the same pool. And how do you change a heart? You need it with a pamphlet? You do that? Just more rules? Curb the behavior? Just keep the pigs in the pig pen and we'll be all right. No, you're going to need more than that. You've got to change the nature. 
And that's what Jesus Christ does. He makes the old new. Changes us into a new creation. Not perfect, but one who constantly sees the need. Constantly sees Christ as the answer. See, I can... I can live in this world that is war-torn, live in this world with the pandemic, live in this world that is filled with controversy, filled with the lack of unity, and I can at least first attend to my own heart. Above all things, guard your heart, right? And Christ can help me with this anxiety, and I know that in Christ I can find peace. It starts there. And then I realize that he's put me on a path of accomplishing his mission, equipping and empowering people in their God-given gifts to advance the kingdom of Christ. It's a mission that far transcends a pandemic, far transcends the political spectrum. We get all lost in those things. Let me tell you something. That, that's just the little stuff. I'm not saying it's not important, but God has got us doing an eternal kingdom of God kind of mission. That doesn't stop. I'm excited about that. And I know that in the midst of all this stuff, church doesn't stop. My Christian life doesn't stop. Marriage doesn't stop. The things that God calls me to be as a man doesn't stop. It may seem like everything is put on hold, but it's not. Think about God. Think about the knowledge of God in your life, living the presence of God right now. Peace of God. Resting in my heart, sitting still. You know what? You can do that even at 5.30 this evening. You'll watch the game. It's no joke. God... You've given me the enjoyment of even this, to watch a game. It's from your hands that I appreciate. Win or lose, God is still in control. Right? Right? Oh, no, it's more than just a game. Don't be telling me that. I didn't say that. I'm just teasing, all right? <laughs> All right, let's go before the Lord.